basically we were in their house. I'd been invited in. We were trying to finalize the deal. And at some point they just got up and said, you have clearly wasted your time and my time. Let me show you to the door. We're not doing this. Welcome to the Fueling Deals Podcast, the podcast that teaches how to accelerate your business growth through all types of deals. It's time to fuel up, so buckle in with your host, Corey Kupfer. There are only two ways to grow your business, organically through sales, marketing, and providing great products and services, and inorganically through deals. Too many companies focus on only the first way, organic growth. Welcome to the podcast, which will help accelerate your business growth inorganically. My guests are a huge variety of deal makers and experts on all types of deals who have personal experience that can help you grow, get clear, learn best practices, and avoid mistakes. We discuss everything from large complex mergers and acquisitions to smaller deals that you can do even without significant capital. My guest today is Chris Wilkerson. He's an operator, investor, and advisor to startups and buyouts of niche cash flow positive companies. Portfolio companies include opportunities in hospital services, creative marketing, talent management, and property management. And I'm thrilled to have Chris on the show. We've known each other for over a decade from Entrepreneurs Organization. Chris, I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you, Corey. Thrilled to be here as well. Excellent. So, so Chris, you, you, you're a founder and CEO of, a, of High Bar Capital. Uh, and we're going to talk about that and some of the deals that you do. But before we go there, I'd like to take you back to when you were a little kid. And what did you want to be when you grow up? Because uh, maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is, uh, in, you know, an investor and deal maker might not have been what you were thinking about at six or eight or 10 or 12 years old. I, I, can, I can guarantee you that was not what I was thinking about. Uh, but I can tell you, you know, starting in fifth grade is when I started my, my first business. And my parents wrote a book called Businesses Your Kids Can Start. And they, they wrote the book, they published it, and then they realized they probably needed a test case. And I became their first test case. So I started a business called uh, Pakistander Plus. And between fifth grade and when I got out of uh, college, I was running a plant nursery, r- growing mountain laurel, rhododendrons, Pakistandra, myrtle, et cetera. Et cetera. And, and uh, it was a pretty fascinating experience. But my, uh, my dress code involved a pair of shorts, bare feet, and nothing else. <laughs> oh, I love it. And, you know, that, that actually anticipated the next question I usually ask on the podcast, which is, you know, wh- what was your first real business you started? So do you consider that your first real business? How have you yeah. find that? <laughs> I absolutely do. It paid for, uh, paid for all my expenses from uh, high school and college, which was pretty fantastic. I love it. I love it. And I love the fact that your parents wrote a book like that. And then, you know, you, you were the guinea pig. Is that, is that book still available? Or is it long out of print? Yeah, I think this was a limited run of a self-publication. <laughs> got it. Got it. Well, listen, that's, you know, that's great. I mean, I love, um, you know, it's, it's interesting to me because I find, uh, you know, with uh, so many parents uh, of our entrepreneurial colleagues, uh, the, um, sort of the pressure is more in the other direction sometimes when people say they, you know, they, they want people to go to school and get an education and go work for somebody and make a good salary. And your parents were encouraging you to be an entrepreneur from a very early age. That's, that's fantastic. Absolutely. So uh, give us a, a couple of minutes on what uh, High Bar Capital does and what you and your team do and, you know, the types of investments you make and deals you do. Yeah. So uh, with High Bar Capital, our ongoing investment thesis is we want to own a more than majority, so a significant portion of three to five businesses at any given point. 
Uh, we want to be able to start coming into those, whether we're starting them up or we're acquiring them. But uh, as they are growing and kind of getting their legs below them, uh, make sure that we are helping set the strategy, set up some of the internal operations and really work with the team. Uh, and this is everything from helping them, you know, using things like rock habits uh, to set them down the right trajectory so that uh, as we work with them, it's really measurable and we can scale appropriately. Uh, so we're either going to run them for cash uh, and some of them we're, we're growing for, for sale. Uh, but we're, we try to take the the approach to give us that luxury that we're not up against a, a, t a timeline to make the decision. Great. Yeah. Because there, there's, you know, another approach that some other acquirers slash investors uh, do, which is they're less concerned, right, with cash flow, and they're looking to basically buy a company to, to increase its uh, enterprise value, market value, and then flip it. Uh, and, you know, I hear you saying that that's uh, not your model. No. Uh, and, you know, part of the thought process behind that is, you know, running the businesses that I have, the lifestyle that I have, and with my family, uh, you know, we want to make sure that we give ourselves some great flexibility in what we want to do. So our goals are aligned all across all three and very much look at these businesses. Uh, I love running them. I love building them, uh, having that excitement there and working with the teams. Uh, but I also want to make sure that I am, uh, I'm doing it for the right reasons, which is largely for the employees to help them benefit, obviously the customers, but also for my family. So the, we can do things that we want to as a family. Oh, that's great. That's great. And, and, you know, it's one of the things that I often talk about with entrepreneurs, you know, uh, there's a number of reasons why we become entrepreneurs, right? You know, we have a vision, we think we can do it better. We don't want to work for somebody. Um, but one of the things that, uh, you know, I'm, I'm amazed sometimes is that some quote unquote entrepreneurs uh, basically buy themselves, you know, a job or get married to their business and they, and they don't like, what are the objectives? Why do we become an entrepreneur? For me, one of my highest objectives is freedom and, you know, to uh, design the life I want. And that's why I become an entrepreneur. And I hear you taking the same approach. So it really resonates with me. Yeah. My, my wife and I always refer to it as lifestyle by design. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's great. So, so you've done a number of deals over the years. Uh, you know, they've ranged from uh, uh, you know financing acquisitions and you know, and business partnerships is something I know that you and I have talked about uh, in the past as well. And there's some uh, pitfalls and, uh, and and challenges in that area. So, talk to us a little bit about um, you know how you do those right, and uh, maybe where you've uh, learned some things over the years and. Uh, you know, what our listeners can, can understand about those kind of deals. Yeah. And I think there's, there's two approaches, two items that I'll, I'll talk about. One is in an acquisition and it was probably one of my earliest lessons. Uh, it took me the one business that I uh, acquired in particular that I'm thinking about. It took me three times to, to get to the table, to get the deal done. And that was done over the period of about nine months. Uh, and at one point, uh, one of the one of the owners of the company, basically, we were in their house. I'd been invited in. We were trying to finalize the deal, and the, at some point, they just got up and said, "You have clearly wasted your time and my time. Let me show you to the door. We're not doing this." <laughs> and I was, my jaw kind of hit the ground, uh, and it was because I had missed some some clues, largely around what was important to the current owners. The second one was who was really making the decision. And I made a mistake on who I thought was really guiding 
the conversation. It had nothing to do with ownership. It would truly was about influence. And I missed that mark. Uh, and after I was shown the door, it took, truly took me six months to get back in to talk to them about it after uh, kind of emotions had cooled off. So, so let's, I, I'd love to delve into that piece a little bit because it's so, so important um, because, uh, you know, understanding what the other side wants, what they care about, uh, what's important to them. And, and what's interesting to me in doing all the deals I've done is sometimes they make that very clear and maybe we hear it or don't hear it. And sometimes I find that um, they might not even be clear on what's really important to them. Um, mm-hmm. You know, so so uh, can you talk a little bit more about either in that particular situation or in other situations where, you know, how you go about uh, figuring out and hearing what's important to the other side and how that affects your deal making? Absolutely. I think er, very early on when I started doing the investing, my focus was so much on, hey, show me show me your financials. Let's look at the numbers. I'm sure we could get something worked out here and we'll just uh, and we'll get it done. It was a very green MBA like approach. Uh, and what I realized is that doesn't work. And so now as in where I spend my time is really, is actually trying to spend as much time with the owners, with the company and looking to see what they say, ideally how they don't say what their body language is during certain conversations uh, to also, if I, if I have an opportunity to talk to, uh, other family members who may be involved with the business and even the employees if I can and ask them, Hey, what has it been like working with, you know, the, with the owners? What have you seen that's really important to them? What do they value? Uh, and I, my experience so far has been, it's more around what they don't say and or the tactic. I mean, I've had a, a deal that I'm looking at currently and the one individual, the owner has simply said, all I want you to do is take care of my girlfriend in this deal. And I was like, it's really interesting. Now he was point blank about what he wanted, but most of the time it is what they don't say that I'm looking for. Yeah. And you know, it's, it's, um, I really think about that a lot because I've had experiences similar to that, where there are things that you would not expect that were, you know, ultimately what got the deal done or not. I I can think of just two examples. One was a, a firm in the, in the wealth management industry uh, where, you know, the guy was already pushing his 70s. He definitely wanted to retire. He wanted some time on his own. That was clear. He liked the money on the deal. That wasn't the problem. Um, he liked the people who were the buyers. But for some reason, the deal wasn't getting done. And what we, you know, without going into a long story, what we ultimately determined was, you know, the guy didn't want to fully give it up. It was his baby. Yeah. He had founded it. He had whatever. And when they, when they told him he could be the executive chair, uh, you know, uh, of the, you know, the board, which is really an honorary position. And that if he wanted, you know, with his top five clients who he had had for 30 years or whatever, you know, he could still be on phone calls <laughs> that closed the deal. You know, it wasn't more money, you know, it wasn't anything else. Um, and, and we had another one that was similar where uh, they, they, they realized they had to give, let the guy keep his office. So they come in. <laughs> Corey, I was just going to share that. I, I, I had a, a friend of mine who did something and it truly came down to him being able to keep his office. So he had somewhere to go. Yeah. It's, uh, it's amazing. And sometimes, you know, sometimes it's about, uh, you know, feeling useful. I mean, frankly, in this guy's case, it was much more about the fact that, you know, he didn't want to be home with his wife hundred percent of the time and you can judge that, but that's what it was for him. And they had to, they had to, had to address that need. 
Yeah, and uh, it's tough for him to ver probably verbalize that, but I but I've seen that specific example once or twice. Oh, totally. So, what are some of the other things uh, that you've come across? You know, in terms of uh, uh, learning lessons or things you did right or things that you know you uh, you, you didn't do right in the past. Uh, in terms of these types of uh, investment deals, uh, business partnership deals, uh, acquisition, yeah. et cetera. Yeah, on the, on the partnership side, we I have a, a, a one business that sells hospital services, and we were selling into hospitals. And we create and we realized that there's a, there are a lot of other people who are selling significantly larger dollar size deals than we were, uh, and they might they're a managed service company, and they might end up coming in and then being in the hospital and we would end up selling to them. So we took the approach of, hey, let's create a partnership where they could bundle our service because they were hiring us already and actually try to create a win with them so that it was a financial win, whether to the larger corporation as well as to the individual. Uh, and we did that three or four times with probably some of the top managed service companies in the country. Every single one of them, I would give ourselves a B minus in terms of success at, at the highest rating. Um, we continue to get a lot of business out of them, but we never cracked uh, kind of the alignment that we needed because a corporate uh, development officer who was doing the partnerships loved what we were doing. They said, this is so great. We can actually, uh, we can offer your service at a discount to our clients. That's a win for us. Uh, you can pay, uh, you can give us uh, some some of the money that's a financial win for us as well so we thought we were creating two wins for one of our client we were creating a third win for the hospital we said this is fantastic and we invested a significant amount of time and money into it what we realized was the disconnect between the excitement of a purchasing office doing a deal and someone who was on the front line who made the decision and they didn't care uh, and they just said this we're going to hire you and we don't care about the deal that you've done, uh, and they always wanted to rework it. And we often got caught in the middle between a corporate purchasing group uh, and their own employees. And it was it, it often got, unfortunately, ugly when we were actually trying to create wins. Um, so the partnerships have been very challenging for us to uh, create. I think, And we have a couple learnings out of it, but those have been some of the most difficult things we've ever done. You know, it's it's interesting because uh, we always talk about. I mean, you know, uh, those kind of partnerships, or or some people would call them strategic alliances, are you know tempting. And 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 listen, there are some that work out really, really well. And and I think they're actually underutilized in a lot of ways. Where, you know, I'll often say to clients, "Hey, um, you know, who else? You know, as opposed to banging on doors yourself, who else is already in that in that market? Can you do a, you know a deal with them to partner or to do a strategic alliance where?" they're already selling into your market or, you know, are there other companies in your, in your industry? Are there, you know, vertically or laterally, or maybe they do the same thing what you do, but it's in a different geography that you can do an alliance or a partnership with. Uh, and, and they make sense and some of them really work out, but uh, you know, there are a number of factors that can be challenging. And I think one of the ones that you identified was um, who are all the players who, who are all the stakeholders uh, in it that have to make it work and have they all bought into it? I think that's absolutely true, and and specifically when for from our experience, and again, this is working through a you know what we we thought was the right group, the, the corporate purchasing group. Uh, we realized that as soon as an opportunity that we the opportunity that we were offering came to light, everyone wanted a, a little bit of piece of the pie, and what happened is our incentive was so diluted 
across all the all the parties that each party said, eh, that's not worth my t- my time and effort. Whereas in retrospect, if we had given the incentives to maybe one or two of the parties involved, it could have been highly successful. Great. Uh, any other lessons or learnings either out of that deal or other deals that you've done in this whole uh, business partnership strategic alliance area? Uh, I think the other area was how our, how the services were going to be sold. Uh, for example, we had, we had kind of in our mind an unspoken assumption of, oh, well, you will put us in as part of your offering and white label us. And we had gotten some verbal conversations that confirmation that that would happen. And then in reality, uh, no one wanted to do that. So I think the, the other one is to really get the assumption, what you think is an assumption and have a, a serious conversation about making sure that everyone's on the same page about it and then understanding how their, how your partner is going to do it and how you're going to deliver on it. And we, we made some assumptions and it became very clear that uh, what we assumed was not going to happen. Oh, that's, that's great advice. And just to take a step back for, for any of our listeners who um, don't know the concept of white, white labeling, uh, Chris, would you, would you explain those kind of deals, what, what, what you do when you, when you white label something? A- absolutely. So uh, we have, our company would come in, we, we would typically sell to a hospital under our company name, uh, and that would be the normal process. With a white label, we would allow one of the managed service companies to sell it as their service and they would invoice the client and we would just come in and say, Oh no, no, we're just, we're part of this larger service company, uh, a division effectively. And no one knew that we were a separate company whatsoever. And that's a, that's a pretty popular deal. Uh, uh, you know, fueling deals listeners in uh, that's done in software, for example, where uh, you know, there, there's a separate company is to develop some sort of software application, SaaS product, whatever it is. And um, they allow other people to use their branding on it. And it may be totally white labeled where you have no idea uh, that any other companies involved, or sometimes you'll see, you know, on, on, on these uh, apps and, and, and products and sites, uh, you'll see, you know, it's ABC company powered by XYZ. Correct. That's, that's often a, a white label deal, right? The powered by is the people who really produced it. Uh, they have something they probably do for multiple uh, companies and, uh, you know, they allow another company to put their branding on it. They may tailor it a little bit, customize it a little bit, but fundamentally it's, uh, you know, it's an off-the-shelf product. You know, something similar happens, you know, I've done some food industry deals, uh, you know, where, for example, store brands are often made by brands you've heard of. Uh, uh, you know, it's uh, whatever, I'm making this up, but, you know, uh, Wallbaum says, you know, ragu making their sauce and, uh, and they sell it under their own brand. So, you know, this is the kind of deal that happens uh, in various ways in, in a number of industries. And it's an interesting opportunity uh, to pursue, uh, although, uh, you know, Chris is giving us uh, some uh, of the caveats on uh, <laughs> where they go wrong. I still, I still love them. I'm just telling you, I've learned from, learned from doing them a couple times. <laughs> right, right, right. So, so just to, and you sort of alluded to it in the, you know, in the, in the negative way, but if we wanted to summarize, what are some of the tips on how you do those deals right? What would you say? I, for, in, in, from my perspective is to make sure that it is, it is core and critical to your partner, the service that you're offering, so that they want to promote it and it's easy for them to promote it. Uh, we found that if it was an awkward conversation, someone said, hey, I just don't know how to bring this up, uh, that it never went anywhere. But if it was core to what they were doing 
uh, it was much easier. The second one is making sure that, you have the fun we, that we get the financial assumptions and incentives right uh, for the parties that are going to make the decision, not just uh, someone in the back office. Uh, and I think that that third is, is really uh, making sure that it's delivered in a, in a seamless, natural way. Uh, not that it's like, hey, I'm going to flog this, uh, this product too because I might make some money on it because people the, the end customer always sees that, at least from our perspective. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. The end customer sees it. And at the same time, on the second point you raised, um, you know, it, 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 ultimately it's salespeople who are selling this stuff. And, and listen, frankly, if salespeople aren't clear on how they're going to make more money from something, they're not going to sell it. <laughs> yeah, it, a- absolutely. Um, so when, when we do get it right, it is, uh, it, it's easy for them to do it. And it, it doesn't seem like they're selling it. They go, this is a natural fit for what we do and why our client trusts us. Uh, we would love to include this because this makes us look good to our client because we found a solution that we couldn't offer without you. And that's when it, we just, we knock it out of the park. Oh, that's great. So uh, any other, uh, talk to us a little bit uh, about some of the other types of deals that you do and, uh, and, and some tips and lessons on, on any of those. Uh, some of the other ones have been uh, actually, you know, starting the businesses up from scratch. Have, uh, and I've got some experience there uh, where we've, we've raised some money at the get-go, uh, put, it to get, put, put a deal together to actually build the business. Uh, and for that one, I think one of the big, the big lessons that we had, and I described earlier what our perspective is and how we approach it. You know, a lot of these are for cash flow. You know, some are with the intent to resell. Uh, but the timeline that we have might be different than some investors. So when we raised capital and we went into a deal with some partners, it's really important for us to make sure that it's not just the money that's coming in. It's that we have a partner who thinks like us and truly understands how, how we're going to operate, particularly since we're always looking for a control position. So that's great. Let, let's, let's delve into that a little bit because, uh, all money, anybody who does this stuff, uh, you know, more than once uh, starts to understand if they didn't know in advance that all money is not equal. And you basically said that, right? Absolutely. You know, that, and, and, you know, there's smart money and dumb money, quote unquote. And then there's also strategic money and, uh, you know, and, and, and just money. Right. Um, and then and then on top of that, you have just, you know, the personalities and getting along and the, you know, vision alignment and all that kind of stuff. So can you delve a little bit more into, uh, you know, and then obviously there's also a million ways you raise money, right? You know, whether it's private, uh, public, uh, you know, angels, uh, friends and family, uh, VCs, et cetera. So can you give us a little bit more about, you know, how you've raised money from whom uh, and how you've worked to assure that they're the right fit, uh, the right type of money, the right type of people? Yeah. So I think there's kind of three categories that I, that I have done. Um, one is I've done some debt and that was just through, uh, banking relationships and actually was able to take advantage of some, uh, tax incentives. So, uh, this was m- many years ago, but originally, uh, the Brooklyn Navy Yard and I'm based here in New York city, uh, it was considered an economic incentive zone. And I moved a business into the Navy Yard and was able to take advantage of some tax incentives there, which was fantastic. So, I mention it because by doing that and those tax incentives were immediate, it actually reduced the amount of capital I had to raise. So that was, uh, it was almost, that was, it was the approach there was how do I reduce what I need to raise, which would made it easier. And the second part of that was doing some bank debt, uh, which 
is not terrifically exciting, but the terms are pretty clear uh, and it was easy to follow. Right. And, and let's let, let's just take a uh, let me take a moment there, because I want to mention that under the recent tax law uh, changes, which, you know, whether you agree, disagree or whatever, they're they're in there. One of the things that came in that bill was uh, uh, a very robust opportunity zone program around the country in which there are uh, various of these tax incentives similar to the kind you know, uh, that uh, Chris mentioned that he used years ago for businesses starting up in, in one of, I forget how many of this, like, I don't know, 1800 something zones around yes. the country. They're and fantastic. Also, yeah, and also for companies that, like if you own property and you can do what's, uh, we won't get into the details of what a 1031 like kind of exchange is on this show, but, uh, but if, you, if you own uh, uh, real estate or other businesses with that you can roll in, there's some big incentives there. Um, so just something to mention, uh, and um, you know, we have uh, on a, another episode or two, we'll delve into those more deeply, but just uh, because Chris mentioned tax incentives, it's something that if you're doing deals, you want to see what's available. Yeah. And, and Corey, I've done it with one of the 1031s and again, fantastic opportunities, but on the, on, on the capital raise, uh, we've also, I've also done it from a friends and family, uh, yeah. which is always challenging. Uh, and the way that I did it is I went out, uh, I was able to raise the capital that I needed for this specific deal. Uh, the people that I went after understood the market, but in order to keep things, relatively clean. I put a personal guarantee on it, uh, regardless of the outcome of the business. And that was, so that was, I'm not necessarily recommending it, but I did do it and it did turn out very well. Uh, so that, that was attractive. Uh, and then the last one was raising from other angels where we went in together, we took a controlling position, uh, and we just, the operating agreement became critical to how we were going to operate and what expectations were. That's great. So, so just working backwards on on those two, uh, uh, you know, for people who are, an operating agreement is the is the agreement that governs the business partnership, but usually in in, in an LLC, uh, limited liability company structure, and it it, you know, it governs uh, who has voting control, how decisions are made, how the money flows, all the what ifs. You know, what if somebody wants out of the business or they die, it becomes disabled, or you know, all of those things. And and yes, th those are absolutely crucial. Um, Going back, you know, when you gave the personal guarantee on the second one to friends and family, um, you know, were you trying to, one of the big things on friends and family rounds that's risky is, of course, you have personal relationships that are involved. And if the deal goes bad or people are unhappy or they don't get their money back or make the kind of return they want, um, you know, that could affect personal relationships. So um, was that part of the reason you decided to give the personal guarantees to take that relationship risk element out of it? Or was it for another, another reason? Uh, it was because that, that was the way for both for that, for, to try to lessen the intensity of the uh, friends and family relationship uh, was part one. Uh, and two, it was because uh, I knew that the, the other part of it was, I said, there is not a time horizon that I'm going to pay this back. And I just said, you should assume that this is going to get paid back in 15 to 20 years. Uh, so I set their expectation way out and then was just set it up so that I could pay it back as early as I could. You know, I paid it back within five years, which was ideal. And, uh, but I, I was paying interest the entire time. And so that every, at the end of every month, I wrote a, I wrote a check to a couple people on interest only. And then I had a balloon payment at the end when I was ready.
Yeah, so listen, clear expectations are crucial in any type of deal. But when it comes to friends and family, I think that's that's a huge, huge, hugely important tip. Yes. (laughs) Yes, it was. (laughs) That's great. So, um, uh, you know, before we close out, I've got a a couple less questions for you. But but anything else uh, uh, in terms of your deal experience on what worked or didn't work uh, that you haven't mentioned yet that you uh, might be useful for our audience? The the only last point that I can think of is is using time to your advantage when you can. Uh, I've always found that if I felt rushed or someone was able to create artificial deadline, what I viewed as real deadlines and they viewed as artificial, uh, it often bo- it can box you in. Now you can use that technique, uh, but I've often found that keeping the pressure up gently and then using an artificial deadline and having the confidence to walk away greatly increases uh, our ability to negotiate terms that are favorable, not only to us, but for all parties, because I want everyone to win. Right. You want everyone to win. And at the same time, you need to get a deal done, right? So you need to have something that moves it along. Exactly. Great. Great. So Chris, before I ask you my last question, um, where can people, if you know, people want to find out more about you and what you do or reach out to you, what's the best place to, to contact you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Email. I'm, I'm, I live in my email, very responsive there. So my email at cw at highbarcapital.com. Absolutely feel free to use. Awesome. That's great. So uh, my final question before we close out, um, you know, authenticity for me is something that's super important, you know, and uh, there's a reason my book's called Authentic Negotiating. Uh, And uh, the way I define authenticity is it's not about morals or integrity, although that's obviously, you know, I don't think you'd be authentic if you're out of integrity, but it's it's even more so about uh, aligning what you do with your truth, with really who you are, with, with your, your values, what you truly believe in, what you're, you know, what's what's true for you on a deep level inside. Um, so when you make business decisions and when you do these deals, um, you know, how important is that to you, and 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 how do you how do you go about doing that? I'm gonna think about that. Can you- <laughs> How do, how do I go about this? Yeah. So, so like, you know, you're considering a deal. Um, do you, I mean, so, uh, you know, I, I, I know you and, and from what you said earlier, I have a feeling the answer is yes. You know, you talked about how you make sure your business aligns with, you know, your, your lifestyle, you design that, you know, you, Correct. right. And whatever. So, you know, so, so you're really conscious about uh, uh, the fact that you're not just doing things willy nilly for money or for ego or for whatever. So I'm assuming, you know, when you evaluate deals, in addition to uh, the partners involved in the business opportunity and the money you can make, uh, you know, that there must be other factors that you look at in terms of how those deals align with your vision, lifestyle goals and values. Uh, uh, okay. A- absolutely. And so he, this is, uh, I think, an example of how uh, I, I as an individual have grown and encourage those that I work with to grow as well. So I have a, a business partner Uh, who's been with me for 10 years. And both of us are firmly committed to only doing deals where we know we can have a positive impact in several different areas. One is to each of us individually, uh, financially, but also fitting both of our lifestyles. The second is that we're making a really positive impact on the lives of the people that we're working with, uh, who might be employees of the company, or vendors, and we've got examples in, in several cases of that, where we're helping them really improve. Uh, and when people, and an example of that is when people join us, they gather skill sets and they leave, 
we refer to it as graduating because they've been able to move on to something else. And we mm. love that. Mm. Uh, but the third area is that having a, a social impact into the communities that we're working in. Uh, and, you know, examples can include uh, for us where we're working with, you know, in the healthcare services where we do some very specialized cleaning and disinfecting, we've actually brought those services into the communities of our, of our employees because they had situations and they brought an opportunity to us and we donated time and effort back. But all the businesses we look at, we want to make sure that there's wins on multiple fronts. Uh, and so it's to us, to our employees, and to the communities that we work in. I love it. And what I hear is that those three criteria become a filter for you through which you evaluate uh, deals in addition to evaluating their financial you know, uh, viability and the partners, et cetera. It's, it's actually the first filter. that Those are the first, those three criteria are the first filter because it's not worth us looking at financials uh, unless we know that there's an opportunity to hit, the, hit all three of them positively. I love it. You're talking my language. <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. So, listen, Chris, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, Corey. Thank you for the opportunity. And thank you, Fueling Deals listeners, for tuning in. Remember, there's only one difference between companies that grow inorganically and those that don't. And it's unrelated to size, amount of capital, or any other factor. Other than that the owners and executives of companies that do deals make a decision to do deals, and then they take action. It's time to refuel. So until next week, Corey Kupfer signing out. Thank you again for tuning in. Be sure to leave Fueling Deals a rating and review on iTunes and Google. Check out all our episodes at fuelingdeals.com to find out more resources to accelerate your business growth.